good to have you today. It's always a little extra clingy when I get off from work. I've been around for a while. You ready for this? Doing it next week? Piano too? Okay, I missed it all. All right, well then I need to grab a Bible because it's my turn. Thought <laughs> we had still playing? Yeah. Okay, let's do it. Y'all ready? Today is Family Sunday. We're going to postpone some of the things because our accompaniment is uh, enjoying a weekend with his family. So, you hope he what? You hope he's listening? Are they at a beach or something? Oh, okay. Well, I can't say that I hope he gets a sunburn because he's not at the beach. Well, whatever's going on in Pittsburgh, I hope they're just having fun, enjoying themselves. Yeah, sure, it's chilly. Yeah, you went up, thought it was summer. Yeah, it's Christmas. Enjoy, enjoy. All right, girls, who's coming? Take a minute, you know, the idea of playing the piano is not a spiritual gift. But to do it for the honor and the glory of God, for the service in his church, the reasons why you do those things is a spiritual gift. You do it to help, you do it to love, you do it to care, you do it to feed. Those things are spiritual gifts. Our talents can be used to honor and glorify God through the power of the Holy Spirit. They are to be poured into the local church. And as a piece of that, what happens as our church gets strong, we saw this last week in the book of Acts, as our church gets strong, as our church gets more loving, as God does more here, it goes out and it starts to bless 
or confront the community that we live in. And it just grows from there and there and there. So as you develop your talents, bring them under subjection to the Holy Spirit, the giftings of God, and use them. To be able to build a structure is not a spiritual gift. To do it in service of someone in need takes that talent and places it under subjection to the Holy Spirit. That He may do something in you and through you that blesses the church or the community that you're living in. You know, so many people have talents and they miss this connection between what they do or who they are or what they're good at and how that service leads into uh, blessing God's people and being a witness for Jesus to the world. So as you start to develop, as, as our young ones start to develop into the things they enjoy, the things they're good at, you and I need to find ways to edify them, to lift them up at times when correction needs to be made, to correct them, but we need to be getting them ready to turn them loose on a world that needs what they have to offer. Some will be able to teach and speak. Some will be able to play. Some will be able to build. Some will just be leaders. Some will be gifted in evangelism. Some will be gifted in faith. And the things they do in their life, the things they do at work and the things they do at school even now need to be leveraged for the glory of God. Why? Because he is into using both the youngest and the oldest. And we need to remember that here. So I'm very thankful uh, for our church and the opportunity that it is given for so many young ones to participate um, as we continue to build this culture of a church, build this culture of what we're trying to achieve, we're going to see there will be more young ones that buy in and more young ones that want to do things and more young ones that God is calling to prepare them now for what's to come later. And we're going to be here to foster that, to love that, and to push that. So when your children start talking about wanting to do things for the Lord, you be sure to get them fed or encouraged to continue to do it or to come to someone that can put them in a position uh, to do it. Why? Because that will pay dividends into the future. We're going to be in Acts chapter. Let's see here. Where are we going to be this morning? Acts. They were all running together as I was studying. Chapter 5. Acts. Chapter 5. Hope bigger than death. Hope better than life. Where we've been. The last couple weeks. Where we've been since Easter. I told you we were going to build a case. That if you uh, were here. And you were uh, listening. Or you were watching at home. And you were listening. You were paying attention. That by the time we finished. You would have a case. A, a really a rock solid case. To believe in a resurrected Jesus. That it wouldn't just be a fairy tale. That you somehow believe in. That it wouldn't just be. Uh, something that you grew up listening to and you thought it was a good story. It wouldn't be something in the most emotional of moments that would just be a crutch to lean on. But it would be something, a truth, that you could dig your heels in on and say of all the other explanations, the only one that makes sense is that on that first Resurrection Sunday, a bodily Jesus Christ come out of that grave. And that he appeared to men and women. That he changed their life and that he set them on a course that would change history. You and I sit here this morning on the shoulders of, of mothers and fathers that have come before us. Giants of the faith. 
that were willing to lay down their lives because of the truths you and I have talked about for the last six to seven weeks. Today, I'm going to give you the last two pieces out of the early pieces of the book of Acts. But if you just remember as a quick reminder, what are these proofs that we've talked about? There was the empty tomb. You want to kill Christianity, bring the dead body out and leave it in the street. There's your Messiah risen right there. That's what you believe in. That's all they had to do. What else? There are eyewitnesses. You have to be able to account for people that said they saw things. What is rock solid evidence in today's courtroom? An eyewitness. I saw this happen. I saw that person in that location do that thing. And the plaintiff says, we got it. Right? The one bringing the charge says, it's done. This person is this witness is credible. They have nothing to gain. They saw it happen. This case is locked up. We are done. And sometime around that moment, there is a, usually a plea deal. Because the evidence is strong. You don't have one eyewitness with the resurrected Jesus. You have over 500. And that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What else do we know? Jesus fulfills prophecy even into the way he dies. It fulfills prophecy. Six, seven, eight hundred years before Christ comes, his life and his death fulfill prophetic utterances from kings and shepherds and prophets of old. They saw him coming. The Holy Spirit put in them the words to, to leave this trail, these breadcrumbs right to Jesus Christ. What happens next? Well, there's a massive change in the disciples from cowering and running and scared into ferocious, strong and courageous. The unlearned, the untrained starts to confound the wise of the day. And the men of that time could not contend with them. They could not poke holes in their arguments or their characters. And then we talked about a couple principles as we started in this. Tender-hearted Christians know the Lord. And we talked about it in the context of who gets to see Jesus first. A grieving Mary. And I told you that week, if you want to know the Lord, if it's been a while, if it feels cold, that relationship feels cold, you find something to grieve over that is true and real. The state of our community would be a good spot to start today. Our high school has lost two young ones this week. There are families in our community right now that are grieving the loss of a son and a daughter, a friend, a loved one. Maybe even a hero, a mentor. Some of these younger kids look up to these seniors. And now they're grieving, trying to figure out what's going on. Listen, Christian, if it's been stale or cold in your life for a while, find the proper thing to grieve over. Shed a tear for those families struggling today. Shed a tear for the families in our church this past week that have found themselves in funerals. Grieving over loved ones that have been lost. As a modern Christian church, as a New Testament church, a lot of times we have just disregarded the Old Testament. What was another principle? You will find Jesus in the Old Testament, and you will find him there first. You will find a glorious, grace-filled, wonderful God in the Old Testament, merciful and kind. God does not change from Old Testament to New Testament. Jesus brings about a, a more broad picture of who God actually is. But if you're reading through the Old Testament, you see the Lord there. You see Christ there. And you and I need to remember that. 
And to experience a resurrected Jesus is to be changed. Where were we last week? We talked about Pentecost, right? Pentecost uh, Sunday. What a wonderful time to be with you all. Just to enjoy this idea. But the main point is simply this. You and I are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. For the Christian, the God of the universe resides in you. That seal is there as a down payment. And we'll talk about that as one of the proofs of a resurrected Jesus here to come. But the idea is simply this. The temple, the tabernacle has now been done away with. And you and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The temple of God Almighty. When He tears that veil from top to bottom in the temple. When Jesus is crucified and He pays that sin debt. When it is finished. God opens the door through His own sovereign will to make you and I a temple that He would reside in forevermore. That's a fascinating truth. One that carries with it significant weight. The what comes next is not a what, it's a who. That's the, that's the transition from that ascension into heaven by Christ into the go to Jerusalem, wait, stay together, stay there, you will receive power. So what happens next? There's a promised Helper, I told you last week, the word is alos, A-L-L-O-S. It is a word that means a helper of the same kind. So when Jesus promises a helper, he's telling them that God is going to send a helper of the same kind. Jesus claims to be God, and so he says there's another helper coming, another of the same kind. So God is coming to be your helper. The Holy Spirit would come. And the words are very specific. Heteros would be another of a different kind. That word is not used there. It's alos, A-L-L-O-S. Another of the same kind. The Holy Spirit, God Almighty, is coming to reside in you. The preparation for this time of the promised helper was obedience. They did what Christ told them to do. Christians, that is the preparation for you and I to see the Holy Spirit work. To do what you know to do is right. When conviction hits and God says this is not proper, stop doing it. You and I say you are right. And we turn and go the other direction. We don't make excuses. We don't share blame. We own it. We repent. And the Holy Spirit is welcomed again to take reign. You and I can grieve Him. We can quench Him within our hearts. Preparation was obedience. Do what you know to do. Prayer was their default position. They didn't have to be told to pray. They were interacting with the God of the universe because they knew He was alive and they knew He was listening. And I asked you last week, if you and I had that same assurance, would our prayer life be different? If who sat next door to you, you knew was all powerful, all loving, and had all the resources, how many times would you open that door to speak with them? Or how many times would you just ignore them and go on about your own business? Because the early church knew that Jesus was living. And when they spoke and they prayed, they knew he was listening and they knew he was interacting in them and through them. Prayer was the early church's default position. From obedience to prayer. And what happens next? Power is delivered. What's the fruit? A world-changing witness of God. In and through a church on fire. In Acts chapter 2 through chapter 4, what do we see? We see the greatest party... The world has ever thrown. Fellowship. Food. Safety. And fun. 
No one is left out. Everyone has their needs met. This is the greatest party the world has ever known. They are sharing. They are loving. They are breaking bread. They are celebrating. They are worshiping. And there's safety and unity in all of it. And so that's where we've been. That's what we've talked about. Now, Acts chapter 6. I'm sorry I told you wrong. Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Hope bigger than death. I'm going to take 20 minutes and we're going to be done today. Justin was done at noon the other day and he made me look bad. So today, watch this. I'm even sitting in the Fitbit timer. That's his 60 minutes. We better not do that. Might have some people angry. I'm going to go 21. 21 minutes. Are you ready? I'm going to give you the final two truths. They're going to put the icing on the cake of this amazing truth that you and I are anchored into. That will change your life. Why? Because those that knew it best, it changed theirs. Acts chapter 6, verses 8 to 15. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those of Sicilia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand his wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. This story sounds eerily familiar. Who else did they do this to? Jesus. They can't get him on his character. They can't hang him up on who he is or what he's saying. So they lie. Christian. Christian. You better wake up. You dig your heels in on the truth of God. You dig your heels in right now in this culture that we're living in. If they cannot trip you up on your character, they will lie to destroy you. This sermon doesn't feel real happy. Listen, you and I are at war. And we got too many people walking around with their heads out of the game. Young ones, high school, middle school. You better be paying attention. You want to stand up for Jesus right now? You want to pretend or you want to actually believe that the scripture is what's going to guide your life and, and hang on to you and hold you and anchor you? You better get ready. You're going to make some enemies. And if they can't destroy your character, they're going to lie to destroy it. They're going to lie to hurt you. Why? Because they hate the message and they hate your Savior. You can talk about God all day long. You talk about the Word of God or you talk about Jesus Christ as the only way, it's over. Nobody is pure enough. Nobody is nice enough. Anybody in the public eye that claims to love Christ and actually follow Him and believe in the Word of God, they are famous for about three and a half seconds. And then they are just totally destroyed. You can check boxes right now of names that are in the media that are people that love the Lord and actually serve Him and want to honor Him. And yet they found themselves in these positions. And how long does it take before their character is assassinated? How long does it take before they are no longer welcome? Not long. They can't get you on the character like Christ or like Stephen. The lie 
They'll instigate people against you. They'll stir up things against your character. They'll try to hurt you at school and work. They'll try to make your life miserable. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and they seized him and they brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceased to speak words against the holy place and the law. Who said this man, uh, for verse 14, For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Verses 8 to 15, Stephen is full of faith and the Holy Spirit. That comes uh, a little bit further up in the chapter where it says, And when they said uh, what they said pleased the whole gathering, what did they say? They wanted to find some people to serve. And so what they said pleased, and they said, let's gather some people. And Stephen, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He is the first name mentioned in the group, not that leads, that what? Serves. You want to be great in the kingdom of God, learn to serve. Stephen didn't mean to be a leader. He wanted to serve. And God put him in a place that you and I are still talking about him to this very day. Grace and power, great wonders and signs were, being, uh, uh, be, were just being poured out on his life and through his life. A man others could not contend with. They cannot make sense of what he has to say. They can't uh, confront it in a way that, that would win anyone to their side. So instead of engaging him on what he has to say, they lie. Quick side note to the parents here and, and the people in the school system. You've got to start teaching kids logic again. You've got to start teaching kids how to make an argument and how to form one and how to speak and how to, to not only negotiate but be confrontational in how they, they, they deliver these truths. They don't know how to think. They've not been able to diagnose, well, that's a line. That's not correct. So when someone, when they engage with someone that doesn't believe what they have to say and their college professors are going to do it and their kids in high school are going to do it, some of their teachers are going to do it, we have to teach them how to make arguments with a solid, uh, solid mental faculties that can frame things and pitch them and push them properly instead of turning them loose like lambs to the slaughter. Stephen's mental stature, his physical demeanor, and his spiritual fervor caused even his haters to take notice. You know what happens, young ones? You know what happens, uh, those that are young in the faith? The longer you dig your heels in, and the longer you stand firm, and you take a little bit of a beating, but yet you keep coming back, eventually you earn some respect. Now there are malicious people out there, and you'll never earn their respect. But there's this kind of middle ground that as a believer, you and I get the opportunity to engage with them eventually. I am 40 years old. I randomly still get messages from people from high school that want to ask me about things. I haven't talked to them in 22, 23 years, 25 years, some of them. And they will message me asking questions. Why? Because in a time when they saw me, when they knew me, when they saw some, some anchoring or some steadiness in something bigger than me, they wanted to see not only if I still had it, but if I could help them have it. Dig your heels in. Be courageous. And you will earn the respect of those, even those that hate you or hate your message. But acknowledgement of this uh, acknowledgement of this, this glory that's residing on this person doesn't necessarily mean belief. 
It doesn't necessarily mean repentance. It doesn't necessarily mean respect or grace. Flip over to chapter 7, verse 51. They have seized him. They have taken him forward. Let me tell you something real quick about this passage. I told you last week, Peter preached a sermon. What happened at the end of that sermon? How many people were saved? 3,000. Stephen's going to preach the same sermon. You know how many people are saved? They end up stoning him. Just be faithful. You're not required to facilitate an outcome. You're not required to manipulate the gospel to bring about an outcome. You are required to be faithful with the truth. Some will repent and respond and some will desire to stone you. It's not on you and I to make that decision. It's on you and I to be faithful with the message. You and I are an ambassador for the kingdom of God. I don't care if you're 10 or 100. You are his ambassador bringing his message. And if you change it, tweak it, uh, make it a little more uh, nice or a little more helpful, or you think you can do something to it to bring people into the family, you've dishonored the message. If Jesus couldn't win them all, neither can you. Just be faithful with the message. You and I have good news. It does not need to be tampered with. Look at verse 51. We see what happens. In chapter 7, Stephen gives this sermon. And he finishes this way. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Oh my goodness, he is so judgmental. He's so dogmatic. Can't believe he actually believes what he believes. Our culture does not like this. Newsflash. You stiff necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Verses 51 to 60. The message that God gives you is going to get you in trouble. Sometimes. If we're faithful to deliver, it will always put you where the glory of God is. But it's going to land you in trouble. Verses 55 to 56. Your heavenly vision is a massive blessing brought about through mission, obedience, and intimacy. And what I mean by that is simply this. When Stephen is getting ready to pay the ultimate price, what does God give him the ultimate blessing? He has dug his heels in. In truth. 
and love and commitment to Christ and then love and commitment to those that he is ministering to, what happens as the pressure increases, the vision of God is opened up. If you and I will be faithful when the heat is applied, when the pressure is applied, you and I will see God clearer than we ever have before. He will give you what you need to take the next step. For Stephen, the next step is going home in a brutal way. And instead of recanting and stopping, what does he do? He leans in, he looks up, and God shows him heaven and says, This is coming in just a moment. Just hold tight. Verses 57 to 58, they hated him, they took him, and they murdered him. And I find it fascinating that the scripture says they stopped their ears. His message was so offensive that they couldn't even hear it. As they were making a bad decision, they went ahead and made sure that nothing could block out. That's what our world does. That's what sin does. That's what evil people do. They will block out any hope of turning from a wicked way. And so they cover their ears and progress into this madness. Verses 59 and 60, but they could not stop him or his prayers. Stephen had known Jesus, was powerfully overtaken by the Holy Spirit, and he willfully laid down his life. Why? Because he knew there was a resurrected Jesus. So I told you there was a massive change with the disciples. One of the proofs that Jesus was really resurrected is not only the change in life, but this idea. Not one of them recanted, even though many of them could have saved their own lives. All one of them had to do was say that was fate. I'd like to go back home to my wife and family. We lied. They hid the body. Instead of all of those things, what happens in church history, Stephen is the first martyr for the church. It is said that Peter, when he was marching toward his death, when he was taken as Jesus told him he would be, remember, Jesus told Peter, you'll be dressed and taken where you don't want to go. Where was that? That was to the cross. What he ran from when Jesus was dying on it, Peter would eventually go to. And church history says this, that before he got on it, he asked to be crucified upside down. He asked to make it worse because it wasn't, he wasn't worthy to die like his Savior. That's a man that knows what's on the other side. Do you understand that concept? There have been many people die for their faith. For the last 2,000 years in Christianity, in Islam, in other religions. There have been many people that have died for their faith. What sets the disciples apart is this. They actually saw Jesus. So the faith aspect of it was basically taken away. This was just truth. And given the opportunity to recant, to leave, to, to turn in their faith, they didn't do that. They finished their mission, they went to their death, and then they woke up in glory with King Jesus. And you and I have not had a meal with him or touched his nail-scarred hands. Which is why Jesus would say, blessed are you because you see and hear. Blessed are those that come after that don't. That's the blessing you and I have to live in this faith. But the disciples didn't have that, and thank God they didn't. Because now you and I are leaning on what they knew as truth. Church history says Peter watched his wife be crucified. Why would anybody in the world, any man ever to live, see that go down and be okay with it? And not say, you know what? Yeah, let's go ahead and cash this out. I'm good. She's good. We're going to go home. We'll shut our mouths. Jesus is dead. 
threw him in a garbage heap. These last 30 years, I've been lying. These last 20 years, I've been lying. He didn't do that. Church history says they both died for the faith. Wow. Because they ran into a resurrected Jesus. It wasn't faith that took them there. It was truth. Knowing that, our church mothers and fathers suffered greatly for the cause of Christ. So it's not just that there's a massive change. It's that there's a change that takes them all the way to their death. It was uh, Chuck Colson that made the comment. He couldn't. Um, Chuck Colson made the comment in prison. He come to faith in Christ. Chuck Colson was a guy that was on the inner circle of Richard Nixon. There were, I can't remember how many, seven or 11 people in this inner circle, in this uh, inner cabinet. And, and all of them basically made a, a, a blood covenant that none of them was going to break ranks. That nobody was going to tell the truth. That nobody was going to confess or cut a plea deal. That they were going to take these secrets to their grave and protect each other going in. It wasn't a week later somebody broke. The most powerful men in the world could not hold a lie together for seven days. Chuck Colson in prison said, that's what brought me to Christ. 500 individuals. Church history, you can read about their lives and you see that they all went to the grave saying, Jesus is alive and I am on mission and nothing you can do to me can stop his mission. I mean, this has been in the last 50 years that somebody could pull together a story like that and say, man, that just, that just doesn't make any sense. Somebody should have broke Somebody should have said, man, we hit the body over there. Like, I'm done. This last beating or this last exile was enough. I am out. I want to go home and fish and eat and be with my wife and be with my family. And instead, they were just driven by something bigger than any human mind could make up. It's a hope bigger than death. How about this one? Look at chapter 8 with me. It is a hope bigger than life. Chapter 8, verses 1 and 3. We've been introduced to this man. And Saul approved of his ex execution. That's 8, chapter 1. Who is Saul? He's the young man they threw the coach down at the feet of. He's this up-and-comer that's rising through the ranks. He is stalwart. He is grounded. He knows the Bible. Woo! This guy's a stud. And Saul approved of his execution. And there rose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Look at chapter 9. But Saul... Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that he, uh, so that if he found any belonging to the way, the first name of the church is the way. Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life." The early church picks that name. Men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Verse three. Now, as he went on. His way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Christian, if you're struggling right now, if somebody's uh, hurting you, if somebody is nasty to you, if somebody's trying to destroy you, I want you to understand something and I hope it gives you a, a little bit of comfort. Jesus sees that as persecuting him. Saul 
has never touched Christ. But who has he put his hands on? The church. Jesus shows up and says, why are you persecuting me? Listen to me very carefully. This is going to protect your heart. You cannot do anything worse to that person that is hurting you than Jesus is going to do if they don't repent and stop. What you need to do is pray for them. What you need to do is, is be courageous. Protect yourself when you can. You don't have to be naive, but you don't have to retaliate. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Verse 5. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting the second time. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who are traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose, rose from the ground, and although uh, his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, <laughs> he's praying. Yeah, he is. <laughs> yeah, he is. He's praying. And he has seen a vision. A man named Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many. Uh, Ananias come in and lay his hands on him that he might regain his sight. Verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many uh, about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Verse 15. And the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, verse 20, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. A chapter, two chapters earlier, Saul is approving the death of the first martyr of the church, Stephen. By chapter 9, he's run into a resurrected Christ, or actually Jesus run into him. Knocked him off his high horse. Blinded him for a couple days. Told him the mission that he was going to be sent on. Saul is now a changed man. He is in the active process of persecution. You do not know what's going to happen. Somebody that you are interacting with that is not helpful. You do not know what's going to happen tomorrow. Keep your witness and your testimony intact. If you lose your cool or you do something you should not do, apologize. See, I can't apologize to that person. They're nasty. You apologize because you've dishonored Christ. You've lied. You've hurt back. You've done something to get them back. You've done something to hurt them. You own it because you don't know what God's going to do tomorrow in the life of that person. A resurrected Jesus runs into him. Paul don't run into Jesus. He ain't, you know, Saul ain't looking for Jesus. Jesus runs into him. That is tremendous comfort. It doesn't matter what people are doing. The Lord comes in like a bright light, a sledgehammer. Changes people, wakes them up, shakes them to their core, and puts them on a path to bring about blessing. Saul's life gets a new vision. Though he cannot see, he has a new vision. Verses 10 to 12, the vicious one meets the precious one. 
and from enemy to ally. Final proof I want to give you that puts this case together today is this. Enemies become followers. Saul of Tarsus is not the only one. We have read the Gospels where Jesus' brothers, his family thought he was crazy. Do you know who James is who writes the book of James? Do you know who Jude is that writes the book of Jude? Half-brothers of King Jesus that thought he was crazy before the resurrection and yielded to him after. And this is beautifully summed up in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 with, with Paul's testimony to the Corinthian church. It's all there laid out. The disciples are changed. They're going to pay with their own blood for a truth that they knew from start to finish, not one that they just believed. Muslims do it all the time. Jihadists do it all the time. They die for their faith. But they do not have first-hand knowledge of what actually went down. Christians die for their faith all the time. They do not have first-hand knowledge about what went down. The disciples did. And they went that road anyway. Then you have enemies that become allies. And for you and I, there's this internal peace that the Holy Spirit comes as a seal and a down payment. For heaven to come. You can't use this as proof externally. This is only for me and you. When the Holy Spirit comes and that power within you. When you know that God is residing in you. That His power and His presence are on you. It is a personal confirmation. I had to explain this to the kids last week. In the context of buying a home. Right? Buying a car. If you have a down payment, what happens? You get a lower interest rate. And a lot of times you will get approved. Why? Because you have some skin in the game. It actually cost you something. God says in order to prove that heaven is real, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to seal you up as a down payment. That's the verbiage of Scripture. So internally, when you and I feel Him work, you know it's real. You can't use that, though, in an apologetic case. Why? It's personal opinion, and other people have them all the time. Mormons have them. Jehovah's Witnesses have them. Uh, Muslims have them. They all have their feelings. They all have their perspectives. You and I know the Holy Spirit is real, but you can't use that as proof. You can use these other things, though. And they're all right there. As they come this morning to play and we get ready to finish up, I'm hoping that these truths become more than just mental games. Listen. In seven days, there have been so many horrible phone calls made. So many text messages got. Listen to me very carefully. Mentally exercising things that are true. They don't take the pain away from those moments, but they anchor you in to what you know. So if you don't care about theology or you don't care about truth or you don't care about what you believe, then let me tell you this. When you pick up the phone and it's the doctor's office on the other end and your results come back and they're not good. When you open up the phone and it's a son or a daughter, there's been some tragedy involved. These truths, grab a hold of your soul right then. These things change your life. So many people just want emotion. And listen, emotion is fine if it's grounded in truth. 
That kind of passion is wonderful. But if there's no commitment to what God has actually said, you and I are just running that high until it's no longer there. And we've seen in a week that your life can be shaken in a day, in a minute, in an hour. So can mine. We sort out these things now. The hope that you and I have is bigger than death. And the hope that you and I have is better than any life you could pick. Stephen on one end would see the glory of God and, and go into this moment of being stoned to death for his faith. Because he knew Jesus. The Holy Spirit was intimate with him. And God Almighty was right there giving him a picture of what was to come. Jesus' hope was bigger than death. And then you got the Apostle Paul living life. He's going to ascend to the upper echelon of Jewish society. He is a Jew of Jews. His life is mapped out. He is going to be powerful. He is going to be mighty. And even in an unselfish way, he's going to be helpful. Because he's going to lead other people into the truths of God. And yet he cashes it all in. Why? Because he runs into a resurrected Jesus. Or should I say Jesus runs into him. And he cashes that life in. And you know what life he picks up? The one that Jesus whispers to him when he's blinded and he's praying. And Jesus says, you're going to suffer for my sake. You're going to be beaten, shipwrecked, abused. You're going to be bitten by snakes. You're going to be a wanderer the rest of your life. And part of that is because of how you've persecuted my church. But let me tell you something fascinating. Paul finishes. And he hears, well done. Jesus picks him up. Let me tie this together for you. Who's the next person that sees him in heaven? Stephen. That's the power of the gospel. The man you helped stun is the man that will welcome you into the presence of the glory of God. Welcome you into heaven. A hope bigger than death. And a hope better than life. Stand with me this morning. If you don't know that hope, I pray right now that your life is being drawn in, whether you know Him as a as Savior or you've just kind of wandered away, right? And you just feel cold and calloused. You just feel checked out. Listen, we got all these kids in here today. Do, do you understand? Your responsibility is to make these truths make sense to them too. You think they don't understand them? They do. Have a conversation with them. Make them understand them. Why? Because they're going to need them more than you and I need them. Their life's going to get harder. You and I need to set them up for success. To be shrewd. To be wise. To navigate properly. And the best thing we can do is make sure their faith is real and anchored. As God would have it be. You need something today, you come.